Using some sort of rosy face, fixing got green pot to go around, cutting someone on the shoulder and nicking a rosy apple or something. Like, their experience of the they drive around in riot vans all day, they can't walk anywhere. If they're so popular, how come they can't walk our vans on their own anymore? They turn up five days after your house is burgled, so they can't do nothing about it, right?
Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, September 3rd, 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. And we're on Ramatouche Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to ramatouche.org. And that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org. Uh, also, there are places to donate that you can find on that site. And also check out uh, the land acknowledgement tab on our site at weeklyrev.org for lots of information and as well as other places to donate as well. Um, oh, yeah, oof, uh, what a week, I guess, and, uh, as we get into this, perhaps you're listening for the first time, uh, in case, thank you, if you're listening, if you've listened before, also thank you, this is a, uh, anti-capitalist news program, we also play music in between the news items, because, uh, what's happening in the world, and has been happening, is just disgusting, and frustrating, and sad, and enraging, and it's also important to remember the beauty of art that's out there, and music certainly is helpful. And and I mean, people say in times like these, but uh, these times have always been going on, and perhaps now maybe it's more overt in some ways. But there's always been uh, cruelty and greed um, and destruction happening. It's not a comedy show. I wish I could do a comedy show, and there are moments perhaps that are funny, uh, but that's not the if you're looking to laugh, I mean, depending on your sense of humor, maybe you can laugh at all of the, the fact that these asshole fascists are allowed to be governors and be in positions of power and ruin the lives of millions of people around the world. I don't think that's funny. I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere. Perhaps you are a comedian. You can find the humor in that or punch up. Uh, it's really hard to, though, sometimes when folks are just struggling to survive and things seem to be getting worse and worse on various levels. And then we got climate change, and uh, which, of course, has been uh, an issue since before we were born. And also, it, things seem to be getting worse and worse in the pandemic, etc. But the reason I come in here to do this show is that there are, are a lot of things that folks can do to push back against the false narrative that a lot of corporate media... And capitalist media likes to put put in our faces uh, that ends up blaming the in individual for situations that people happen to be in as opposed to systemic issues that need to be changed. Uh, so there are a lot of ways that folks can show up, whether it's donating, volunteering time, sharing accurate information, or just feeling like you're not alone. I think something as simple as that can help. And it's just a matter of sometimes of just getting through the day. So... If I can do any of the above, that's what I'm hoping to do here. We have uh, archives of the show that go back pretty far. You can also check those out for, I don't want to say when times were simpler, they're just fucked up in different ways. But there's also good music and good interviews with lots of really um, interesting and intelligent people, and I've learned a lot from all the folks who've been on the show over the years. So I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has participated and showed up in a variety of ways. And as I've mentioned before, I am planning on uh, stopping doing the show in December, which I'm quite sad about, and also um, going to think about doing something else with the, the these two hours that I set aside on Fridays, and I haven't been able to make every Friday over the past eight years, and I also want to think about perhaps updating the site a little bit more with more information and more resources for people, and also just continuing on doing whatever work this qualifies as, but perhaps in a in a different medium, and in a way that can also still provide resources for people and help to educate myself because also this the show I've learned a lot just by forcing myself to read articles which had the headlines that were so disturbing 
Um, and sometimes when you when you read what's actually happening, it's not that things aren't terrible or frightening, but you can I can like learn a little bit more, and it doesn't feel quite as uh, horrific as it feels in my brain sometimes. And or I can find people who are doing the work and find ways to support them and or amplify their voices. And that's that's what we do here. There's a lot of news stories that are happening. We've got climate change all over the country and all over the world, honestly. Got people still not believing the pandemic is real. We've got ICUs that are totally overcrowded. Medical workers, healthcare workers are completely and understandably exhausted and overworked and overwhelmed. Um, got fascists still attacking people in the streets, attacking journalists. Got cops still just being fucking fill in the blank. You can choose. It's Mad Libs. You can choose whatever word you want to use to describe cops and their behavior. Apparently, uh, COVID has been the number one killer of cops. I'm going to leave that there. Very interesting. Um, I don't often hold my tongue on this show. Uh, <laughs> you can fill in the blank, though. You can fill in the blank for uh, whatever you think I'm, th I'm, uh, I'm thinking in my mind. You can play like Match Game. That'd be fun. Okay. So it did one, and also the Supreme Court, which is useless and has been for a while. And also there's a great Howard Zinn article from a number of years ago that was a reminder of how the Supreme Court has been crap for a lot of it. Um, as a reminder to, it's not just like, oh, now suddenly they're bad. It's like, oh, no, they've been, they've made a lot of horrible decisions over the years. So it's not, and unfortunately it's nothing new. And we need to find ways outside the system to support each other, which I think a lot of folks are already doing. So there's folks, a lot of feelings about the, uh, the fucking idiot Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, and just them. Now Christy Nome, who's the governor of South Dakota, trying to make even more draconian measures to prevent people from like getting health care for their bodies and reproductive health care, which is just like obscene. And that idea that we have a limited amount of time on this planet, and you can use and the few people who actually have a platform and then can like help pass policy. And instead of using it to like help people and help the planet, they use it to like cause more harm. I will never understand it. I think it's sick and disgusting. And um, I have certain feelings about Greg Abbott and Christy Nome in particular, but also, you know, those. I know that one of those Koch brothers passed, but the other guy who's still around, Henry Kissinger is still around. How is that happening? A lot of people who have caused uh, incredible harm in this country. And I am, uh, perhaps I can do the, the woo-woo thing, and I'll just perhaps wish goodness for everyone aside from, those, aside from those fascists and the other fascists out there. Does that work? Does that count as being, uh, being quote-unquote good? Although if I had my druthers, uh, you know, whatever it takes to end people's uh, inhumane behavior to one another, I think, needs to, be, needs to happen, whatever that takes. And in the best case scenario, people wake up and they're like, oh, wow, I've been doing a lot of terrible things. I'm going to change that. That would be great. I would love that. I think all in all, that would be wonderful. And uh, if that can't happen, then we need to find ways to protect each other. And we cannot have people in positions of power who cause great harm. Or people not in power who cause great harm, but got to aim that anger upwards. Aim it to the folks who are in the, in the places where they can pass these policies that are so just draconian and evil. Uh, there's plenty of resources for everyone on earth and the fact that people are hoarding so many, also billionaires, they can all go. I've thought about perhaps, uh, 
I don't know who listens to the show. We get a lot of downloads, but I still don't know who my listener base is. If you are a creative type and have energy, I thought of the idea of getting a, a Kill Bill poster, but under Bill, uh, the next line says has the letters I-O-N-A, and under that, I-R-E-S. So it's all four letters, four letters, four letters, four letters, instead of Kill Bill, Kill Billionaires. Uh, I, you know... It's just one one idea. I have a lot of ideas of things to wheat paste up and around town. I don't really uh, do that. I think mostly I do stickers because <laughs> they're easier. But if there are folks who have the means and the energy, super helpful to be able to. <sighs> yeah. Put up some art around that hopefully helps people see that there's another way to live and also helps inspire action. I think that would be super helpful. Okay. So, as mentioned, I do have some news stories and ways that folks can help out. So I'm gonna go open up that email right now. It's kind of what I do ahead of time. Sometimes I rant. I'm just still like amazed that people are not wearing masks indoors. Um, I don't know people who might have masks and, and choose not to wear them. Like, I don't, it's not, I get it. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But like, wh- why do you think we're still doing this? It, it's it's like, I, I don't know. It, there's so much that feels so like frustrating and doesn't make any sense at all. So, um, I have got a lot of news articles here. I never get to all of them. <laughs> and of course, how can I? This is just, uh, you know, one small piece of the puzzle. But I do want to share some information. And, of course, can't get to everything, but try to touch on at least a few things that are happening in the world. Um, At least I do want to just share that. I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but the U.S. Nabisco factories are on strike, all of them in the U.S. So perhaps uh, that hasn't made the front page news because we're too busy reading about uh, anti-vaxxers killing people uh, indirectly. So... Um, yeah, there's a a tweet here from More Perfect Union. You can follow at More Perfect Union US. And this was from August 31st, a few days ago. Uh, Chicago Nabisco workers, excuse me, Chicago Nabisco bakers work 12-hour days and weekends in extreme heat to make Belvita biscuits and wheat thins. One worker tells us that while she's forced to miss family time to work, her managers rarely, if ever, work weekends. All U.S. Nabisco factories are on strike. And I'm going to share this the audio from this video here. It's about a little over three minutes. So I'm going to share this. Um, and we'll also share a link to this on our webpage at weeklyrev.org. We've got show notes now. Woo, woo, show notes. So if you want to listen to something again and or share like anything in specific with people, that's a great place to go. Again, weeklyrev.org in today's um Today's notes will be up uh, by the end of the day. So here we go. I work in the bank floor, so it's it's extremely hot down there. And well, they're machines, so they get hot. But what they would do is they would take an AC machine off of a human being and put it on a machine and let you just deal with the heat. If you can imagine what it what a, what food feels like being cooked in the microwave. Hey! 
Oh, I'm also going to just uh, read some of the captions here. So Nabisco workers are still striking across the nation. They're on the picket line 24-7 to stop cuts to wages and health care. We hear every day, like I say, Paris. five, six, seven days, eight hours, 12 hours, 16 hours. We be here making the production. We have a family April just Flowers as well Lewis. as the people in human resources and management. While we're working on the weekend and being forced, they're at home with their families. We can't even get a chance to enjoy birthday parties for our grandkids. We can't go away to see, take our kids to college because we're being forced to work. We can't enjoy our husbands, our spouses, because we're at work. By the time we get off work, is go home, go to sleep, try to fix us something to eat, get in the bed, and be back at work. And when they say, oh, I want to change your hours, I want to take it away, uh, your premium time, I want to cut your health insurance, they're not. They're not loyal. Mondelez, which owns Nabisco, made $3.5 billion in profit last year. Well, we work eight hours. Anything after eight hours, we, we feel like should be overtime. But they're trying to make us work 12 hours a day, which would be just straight pay. And they're trying to take us back into, I feel like, slavery days where we're working all these hours and not, not getting any money for it. Mandela's wants employees to work 12-hour shifts with no overtime pay, pay higher premiums, co-pays on their health insurance, and accept permanent pension freezes. Management don't even care. They do their eight hours and go home, and then they come back the next day and do their eight hours and go home. Sometimes they're off on the weekends. Our plant manager, I don't see our plant manager in the building on the weekend at all. And we almost working every weekend now on Saturday and Sunday. In 2016, Mandela's laid off 300 Nabisco workers in Chicago and outsourced their jobs to Mexico. They already took our Oreos out of our company and took it to Mexico. So that wasn't a good thing. And they paying them less and working harder as well, which is not fair to them as well. So they want to keep trying to do, take stuff from us, and they need to stop taking stuff from out of the United States. I mean, what else we gonna have if you keep taking stuff? We ain't gonna have no job. Mandela's laid off a thousand, over a thousand workers this year, in, this year in Georgia and New Jersey. Workers could face further job losses if they don't take the pay cuts and longer hours. I was laid off for two and a half years. A lot of my coworkers didn't come back. You know, we, there's still a lot of us still out there waiting on things to happen, waiting on openings to happen. We just asking for pay what we deserve. We loyal to you. We wanted that you guys be loyal to us too. That's the only thing we, we just want. We just want equal equal way. We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forward. From this was from a more perfect union, and uh, we'll share the video on our website and I also wanted to the first person speaking his name was Willie Williams so I wanted to share that as well oh, so sending lots of solidarity to all the Nabisco workers out there and also for consumers out there don't buy any Nabisco products don't do it it's like the song Teenage Suicide from Mathers Nabisco products don't buy them uh -huh. yeah okay <laughs> um, yeah very low energy today and that's okay um, there's lots more to get to, and I also wanted to share another video here. Um, this is 
Oh, maybe I'll do one more thing first. I did want to share. Um, uh, there's just a lot to get to, and sometimes it's hard to find a uh, a through. I mean, you can find a through line because everything is connected, and we're all connected here on planet Earth. Uh, and, um, but for the show, it's like okay, got a limited amount of time. Try to get to as much as possible. So I wanted to share this thread. <laughs> the uh, um. I'll, I'll read the, the thread first, and then I'll share the Twitter handle. Um, if today is the first day you decide that abortion restrictions are moving you to action, that's great. There's so much you can do, but please take cues from people already doing that work. Today you can fundraise for an abortion fund, talk to your friends about abortion. Uh, plus, um, you can volunteer to defend a clinic. You can look at the voting records of your reps and council folks and see how to move abortion access work there if, if they won't move um, we need you in this work but it's work that isn't new where do you fit in go there whatever you do don't pull out handmaiden comparisons or let us know why texas is fucked they say ducked uh, or assume uh, what people seeking abortions right now need just ask um, okay gotta go back to work which is a privilege in itself yes so i wanted to share i thought that was a helpful thread and the twitter handle is at t-a-c-o underscore f-a-r-t-z yeah. And there's another thread out there. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there and a lot of organizations that have already been doing this work. So I wanted to promote them. If you're able to donate, please do. Uh, this is from Jane's Due Process. You can follow them on Twitter at Jane's Due Process. That's D-U-E. Our hotline is still open. If you're under 18 in Texas and want information on abortion access, call us. The number is 866-999-5263. So, and you can also sign up to be a volunteer for their hotline. So that's something you can do um, as well. Um, you can donate at janesdueprocess.com forward slash donate. And there's a lot of other organizations as well. And okay, so these are just, those are very um, short pieces that I wanted to share. And I believe there's more as well. Oh, yes, the Lilith Fund is another organization. Uh, NARAL, N-A-R-A-L, is another organization to support. So this is one from Lilith Fund. You can follow them at L-I-L-I-T-H-F-U-N-D. Uh, how to show up for abortion access in Texas right now. You can get updates from them at lilithfund.org forward slash fight back. You can volunteer for their hype squad in Texas, which is lilithfund.org forward slash hype squad. You can donate to Texas Abortion Funds, and that's at, they have a link, and we'll share all of this on our webpage, but if you go to the willithfund.org, you can find all that info there. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, more information as well. This is, again, only uh, a fraction of what is um, out there, so I wanted to start off with sharing these um, pieces of information. Okay, and I'm gonna let's see. Take care of that. All right. So next up, I am gonna share this video. It's about cop propaganda. I am a big fan of movies and TV, and I'm also uh, not into militarization. And it's really difficult. I mean, there's granted, there's plenty of artists out there who wish to create anti-imperialist art, and also it's really difficult when there's so much money behind uh, reinforcing this narrative that. Uh, is so disturbing and um, just untrue. So I'm going to share this video from uh, The Take. Welcome to the party, 
It's called the Hero Cop Trope, a the controversial The Hero Cop history. is arguably our most American character. I mean, I feel like a combination of Bruce Springsteen and Sylvester Stallone out there. I don't know whether I'd be busting bad guys or signing autographs. Kind of like being a star. And across decades of film and TV shows, we've always seen the world through their point of view. The cop has become the default protagonist of American storytelling. And on TV especially, crime is our favorite kind of story, accounting for our longest-running franchises, our most popular sitcoms, and our most prestigious cable dramas. Good cop and bad cop left for the day. I'm a different kind of cop. It's easy to see why we love crime stories. Police! They're basic morality plays that put the world into a clear binary of cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys. This is where the forces of good prepare to fight the forces of evil. And they give us the vicarious thrill of seeing mysteries solved and justice served. You are done, doctor. You're done. The hero cop reassures us that, as the police have often reminded us, there is a thin blue line standing between civilization and anarchy. We are the thin blue line between order and chaos. You take yourself out of the equation, who knows what's gonna happen? A 2019 study even found that Americans trusted the police more than any journalist, religious leader, or politician. That we believe them to be not only good at their jobs, but also fair, accurate, and compassionate. It's an image that's been reinforced across more than a century of hero cop entertainment. Being a policeman is an endless, glamorous, thankless job that's gotta be done. I know it too, and I'm damn glad to be one of them. But as we've become increasingly aware of police brutality and misconduct, and borne witness to cops injuring and even killing the citizens they're sworn to protect, we've begun to question these conceptions. A trolling officer on his beat is the one true dictatorship in America. As pop culture fantasies clash with the ongoing realities in our streets, critics have increasingly derided many police stories as copaganda, even calling for them to be abolished. There is no excuse for you. Come on, the badge and the gun, now. How did the story of the hero cop become such a pervasive, controversial force in our culture? And does this character still have a future? I'm too old for this Here's our take on this most American of myths, and whether it may be time for the hero cop to turn in their badge. There are no heroes anymore, Bishop. Only men who follow orders. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified about all of our new videos. This video is brought to you by Skillshare, an online learning community where millions of people come together to take classes that fuel their creative dreams. Okay, so this is again on YouTube from The Take, and we'll share a link to this on our webpage. I uh, didn't realize there were ads on, <laughs> on here, but you know, that's all well and good. I'm very interested to, to hear the rest of this. and the ads keep on coming. So, again, I'm sharing this from The Take, and the description is about just getting folks to subscribe. However, um, this was uh, shared in a document that I read recently and wanted to share it with all you listeners. The origins have of been the patrolling cop. our screen since the advent of film. But they weren't always heroes. 
Silent movies like the Keystone Cops series portrayed police as bumbling, incompetent clowns. And as early as 1910, the International Association of Chiefs of Police was condemning movies where the police are sometimes made to appear ridiculous, especially compared to charismatic movie gangsters. I don't see nothing, I don't hear nothing. When I do, I don't tell a cop. Or private detectives. And suddenly, the whole plot became clear to me. The cops in these movies were almost never the protagonists. But as growing film productions needed shooting permits and extra security, and Hollywood's earliest stars became embroiled in embarrassing public scandals that needed covering up, studio bosses began to see the value in cooperating. In 1934, Hollywood began enforcing the Hayes Code. We must be on the lookout for scenes or action or dialogue which are likely to give offense. A set of strict moral guidelines that, among other things, declared that criminals would always be portrayed as unsympathetic, and cops would be treated with respect. Since movies about gangsters were still big business, Hollywood found a workaround by making films centered on the men who hunted them. Rain or shine, the special agents are ready for combat with public enemies. In 1935, gangster movie star James Cagney went legit with the box office smash G-Men, which replaced the crook protagonist with a daring FBI lawman. Yeah. He's taking a shower. Any message? There ain't any shower there, copper. Heralding the dawn of the hero cop. We're going to make the word government poison to them if it's the last thing we ever do. G-Men was the first of many films made under the watchful eye of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Let's ask J. Edgar Hoover. In 1954, Hoover even had Congress pass a law requiring that any depictions of his agency get his approval. The nation's top cop thus became a de facto producer on films like 1959's The FBI Story, forcing director Mervyn Leroy to reshoot scenes that weren't sufficiently flattering, and even making a cameo as himself. I am your new director. I did not ask for the position, but now that I have it, I intend to give it the best I have. Hoover exerted similar control over ABC's 1965 series, The FBI, including personally auditioning its lead, Ephraim Zimbalist, signing off on every script, and even vetoing guest stars like Betty Davis due to her presumed communist ties. On Sunday morning, he left the house. Since he was a communist, we knew he wasn't going to church. Hoover recognized immediately that film and television had the power to shape public perception of law enforcement, and he seized control of it for decades. Even if you and the whole FBI find the killer, you're not going to bring him to trial. Why don't we see what happens, huh? But by far, the most influential form of copaganda was a show that, ironically, promised just the facts. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet began in 1949 as a radio serial starring its creator, Jack Webb, as the stoic, straight-laced Sergeant Joe Friday. My name's Friday. Webb wanted to depict police work authentically, using actual cases drawn from the official files of the Los Angeles Police Department. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law. The LAPD agreed, under the condition that it would approve every script, ensuring Dragnet would portray cops as competent, upstanding, and always getting their man. The Dragnet TV series premiered in 1951, 
I guess that's her business, Tanner, how she lived. We're trying to find out how she died. The same year as a violent LAPD assault on seven civilians that came to be known as Bloody Christmas. But under the department's supervision, Dragnet never touched on the reality of the era's many incidents of police brutality. The fact is more people are living better right here than anywhere else ever before in history. And its morally upright, square-jawed fantasy of the hero cop would dramatically shape not only future police stories, but also the real-life cop's public image. As police departments continued to serve as technical consultants on the cop shows that Dragnet inspired, they also gave studios access to resources like police buildings, patrol cars, shooting permits, and even uniformed officers as extras, all in exchange for dictating how they would be portrayed. This realism made the cop show even more exciting, and the cop show quickly became one of the most foolproof formulas for TV success. The hero cop was suddenly everywhere. Car 54, where are you? You know, all that Hollywood crap about uh... The karate expert and a one-punch cop is uh, a lot of Hollywood crap. While J. Edgar Hoover and Dragnet shaped our idea of the heroic lawman, it was former LAPD officer Joseph Wamba who helped turn them into a complex protagonist with his 1971 novel, The New Centurions. Wamba ushered in a new era that humanized cops as flawed and cynical, prone to alcoholism, adultery, and emotional outbursts, and making mistakes. You killed him! You killed my father! He was chasing the robber and you killed him! Heroic not for what they did, but for what they endured. The public don't understand. Lawyers, judges don't understand. We see the victims. We know what crime does to people because we see them like nobody else does. In Wamba's own cop shows, Police Story and The Blue Knight, the police were working class heroes with anxious lives and strained marriages. Please let me in. I just can't go back to work. Susceptible to injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. How do you do it, Casey? What's that? Keep your head straight. This more humanistic depiction of policing mirrored the Vietnam-era disillusionment felt in other 70s and 80s films about beaten down cops at odds with corruption. Hey, Frank, you want a piece of this? No, I want to fill out the arrest cards. Or weary soldier cops under siege in an urban battlefield. Why would anybody shoot at a police station? These tensions and that humanizing approach would come together in Stephen Bochco's and Michael Kozal's landmark 80s series, Hill Street Blues. You want an open relationship? You got an open relationship. Viewers saw the cops of Hill Street Station, as the writer Joyce Carol Oates put it, as figures of Sisyphus rolling their rocks up the hill and the next morning rolling them down again and again. This hero cop persevered at a great personal cost in a world of ever-present danger. Let's be careful out here. Hill Street Blues' sense of empathy would greatly influence subsequent cop shows like Cagney and Lacey, Law and & Order, and Bochco's own NYPD Blue. You're gonna make good detectives, guys. Give yourselves time. Thanks. We're real glad to be working for you, Sarge. Contributing to our perception of cops as sympathetic people who heroically put their lives on the line. You starved your 27-year-old daughter her entire life. 
It's too bad we can't rain down Amanda. some biblical punishment Amanda. on you. <laughs> Amanda. Of course, not everyone wanted their hero cops to be human. As Joseph Wamba told the Washington Post, the network always wanted to stop this damn talking. Enough already. Come on, let's have a cop that can chase somebody down and beat the hell out of them. Those kinds of cops were already on the big screen, responding to a broken system not with tears, but violence. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? And TV answered this call to action with shows like SWAT that turned police work into militarized urban warfare, and with the catchphrase spewing super cops of series like Hawaii Five-O, Kojak, you, baby. and Beretta. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. These cops were far from weak or wounded. They were tough, sexy, and cool, roughing up crooks and performing incredible stunts. We're going to take this car and land it on that boat. Then came the coolest cops of all. In 1984, Miami Vice put an MTV spin on the police procedural. With their tailored suits and sculpted stubble, Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas were the police as pop star. How do you go from this tranquility to that violence? I usually take the Ferrari. And they patrolled a hyper-stylized Miami that was, as seen in the recently released Scarface, menaced by the kind of larger-than-life drug kingpins who could justify their ever-escalating violence. Across the 80s, action hero cops became even more slick and outlandish. I'm jumping! Monday.com work docs. Ah! Wow, they really have a lot of ads. So again, we're uh, <laughs> playing uh, the hero cop trope. A controversial history. Uh, you really want to jump? Let's do it, asshole. Often played by superhuman actors like Sylvester Stallone. The disease, and I'm the cure. And Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm a cop, you idiot! When updated as an 80s movie, even stoic, sober dragnet traded authenticity for high-speed car chases. Look out, Muppets! armored tanks thank god it's friday and rap songs but don't you know we really ought to read them their right read them their right read them their right die hard arguably the most popular cop movie ever made welcome to the party pal took an empathetically human cop in the joseph Wamba mold bruce willis's working stiff john mcclain then pitted him against a veritable army of eastern european terrorists there are rules for policemen so my captain keeps telling me. It wasn't even close. Yippee-ki-yay, mother The hero cop has since become a cliche. You busted up that crack house pretty bad, McGonagall. Did you really have to break so much furniture? You tell me, Chief. You had a pretty good view from behind your desk. But no matter how tired or overworked, the cop has never stopped being our most popular fictional profession. Why don't you tell these men who we are? Well, the law, bitch. <laughs> We put cops in workplace sitcoms and raunchy movie comedies. We partner them with dogs and cute kids. We can't seem to imagine a world that isn't filtered through a cop. Even the realms of the supernatural, the extraterrestrial. I'm part of the bureau that licenses, monitors, and polices alien activity on the planet Earth. Or the fantastical. Not all of these cop stories may be outright propaganda, but the sheer number of hero cops over the years has served to reinforce a similar message. The cop is the protagonist. 
The cop's story is the one that matters. One cop heroically saving the day while everyone else stands around and watches. It's the story of my life. Get ready for a lifetime of being badass motherfucker. Oh, I am. I really thought this job would have more car chases and explosions. This drama of the hero cop myth clashes with the uncomfortable reality of police work. See this? It's a ticket book. Inside are things called tickets. On TV and in movies, cops spend their days solving serious crimes and hauling in felons. But that's just not what police really do. Have you ever fired your gun up in the air and gone, ah? No, I have not ever fired my gun up in the air and gone, ah. According to a 2019 report by the Vera Institute of Justice, while police average 10.5 million arrests a year, the vast majority are for low-level offenses like drug possession or disorderly conduct, not the kind that make for good television. We ain't done that. Seriously, I was just sitting in my chair reading the magazine is all. From their earliest days, when police were tasked with quelling labor riots and keeping immigrants and newly freed slaves in line, the main function of police has been social control. This marijuana right here? Five, seven, that one happened while you were sitting here? In the hero cop myth, any threat to that control is the enemy. Where the hell does it say you've got a right to kick down doors, torture suspects, deny medical attention and legal counsel? Where have you been? Once, defense attorneys like Atticus Finch or Perry Mason, along with rogue private eyes, were our heroes for protecting the innocent and wrongfully accused. I'm gonna kill some John for his bankroll. How can they say that? I got a record, they know me. They're trying to make a motive out of your rap sheet. But beginning with the premiere of Law & Order in 1990, defense attorneys were suddenly opportunistic sleazebags. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of... I got the shotgun. We got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? Today, we empathize with hero cops as they forego warrants and beat confessions out of suspects. We're meant to see their rule-breaking and their violence as justified to accept it as normal. Please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? When we do see cops portrayed as overly violent or corrupt, they're usually painted as bad apples who end up getting taken down by the good cops. Ronald Everett Gardaki, you're under arrest. And even when good cops do bad things, we're meant to forgive them, to believe the guilt they feel is punishment enough. I shot a kid. He was 13 years old. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. Or more often, that they had no choice. Look, that kid was a killer, all right? He would have drilled you, me, anybody that came along, all right? In a 2020 study, the nonprofit Color of Change conducted a sweeping study of all crime shows on the air and found that 69% depicted authorities committing wrongful actions that were then normalized as routine, harmless, necessary, or even noble. If I gotta bend the rules a little bit to get a bad guy off the street, I'm gonna do it. But if I'm sure he's guilty and the case is gonna walk unless I raise my hand, I do what I gotta do. These shows also ignored the racial biases that are often behind those actions. So how's it all going in the torturing business, Dixon? It's persons of color torturing business these days. As the study points out, TV cops exist in a deceptively race-neutral world, where people of color are cast as cops and judges to lend their symbolic approval. Issues of profiling or police brutality are rarely discussed, 
save for very special episodes. I got stopped by a cop last night. Stop for what? Stop for walking. From their cop's eye view, these stories portray an entire community as a potential threat. Option one is we take them alive. We feel free to consider option two. Like most of the stories we tell ourselves, the hero cop myth is based in fear. Word is, we got a hit on y'all, man. Y'all been greenlit. Hey, come on, man. We're cops. Everybody wants to kill us, Trey. We fear rising crime even when statistics say it's actually going down. Police fear their communities because they've been trained to think of them as enemy combatants. And when you're at war, you need an enemy. And soon the neighborhood that you're supposed to be policing, that's just occupied territory. We fear there's no changing it, that this is just how it is. Girl, you can't even call this shit a war. Why not? Wars end. These fears then play out in the real world because we fear that when it comes to cops, the stakes are always life or death. That's exactly what they become. Wow, I hadn't watched this before, and it's really difficult hearing all this fucking nonsense from um, just even the, the movies and the TV shows, just hearing. Uh, uh, how pervasive it is. So much to, to get out of one's head. Ugh. As protests erupted in 2020 over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, and many other black people at the hands of police, they prompted a widespread reevaluation of how we think about the police and police stories. Believe it or not, Watching cop shows makes a lot of people see the police as infallible. This has already led to the cancellation of long-running reality series Cops, which for over 30 years turned policing into a spectator sport. Stop resisting! Stop resisting! And the similar Live PD, a show that critics say spurred Texas police into a dramatic confrontation for the cameras that ended in the death of Javier Ambler. But what about all our other hero cops? Metro units, 34th and Steinway. Unidentified black male pretending to read book on park bench. Probably armed. It's roll! Amid calls for long overdue reform, there is the growing sentiment that our addiction to tidy narratives about infallible police may be holding us back. Training day, lethal weapon, and Fargo, end of discussion. Wrong. Die Hard is the best cop movie of all time. Even Brooklyn Nine-Nine's lovable, diverse goofball cops have been branded as copaganda for putting a cuddly spin on New York police. Just eating some marshmallows, care for one? Marshmallow. Series like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, ABC's The Rookie, and CBS's SWAT have all pledged to do better about addressing issues like racism and police brutality in their upcoming seasons. But we can also find new ways to fulfill our endless desire for crime stories. Series like Orange is the New Black have allowed us to locate the shared humanity in the convicted. All problems are boring until they're your own. While recent shows like ABC's For Life Netflix's Jessica Jones and HBO's Perry Mason have restored public defenders and private investigators as protagonists, working within a justice system that cannot always be trusted. I don't trust the Los Angeles Police Department to do the job that's needed. Neither would I. And HBO's Watchmen has given us a model for a modern, more nuanced kind of cop show, one where police can still be heroes, solve mysteries, and even deliver high-octane thrills 
all while addressing some of the ugly truths of policing itself. Men who end up hanging from trees with secret compartments in their closets tend to think of themselves as good guys. These are not the simple morality plays of good guys and bad guys that we're used to. But then, neither is the world. Maybe it's time the hero cop falls in line. There is no one more full of shit than a cop, except for a cop on TV. Interesting. Um, definitely appreciated uh, some of the, the history behind that. And that was from uh, the hero cop trope, a controversial history. And I found out about this video through our prisons obsolete. There's like a PDF of lots of lots of info, and we'll be sharing a link to that on our page as well. So wanted to just include that since we have the ability to play some audio. Gonna play some uh, music here for a bit, and then we'll be back uh, afterwards. Stay tuned.
Live on direct.
live on direct. This track is not an attack upon the American people. It's an attack upon the system within which they live. Since 1945, the United States has attempted to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments. In the process, the US has caused the end of life for several million people and condemned many millions more to a life of agony and despair. The strength of your dreaming prevents you from reason. The American dream only makes sense if you're sleeping. It's just a cruel fantasy. Their politics took my voice away, but their music gave it back to me. The land where they're lumping are consumed by consumption, killing themselves to shovel down food in abundance. I guess a rapper from Britain is a rare voice. America is capitalism on steroids. Natives kept in casinos and reservations. This place slaves never given reparations. Take everything from Native Americans and wonder why I call it the racist experiment. Afraid of your melanin, the same as it's ever been. That ain't gonna change with the race of the president. I see him. Imperialism under your skin tone. You could call it Christopher Columbus syndrome. Entertainer, the world's devastator From Venezuela to Mesopotamia Your cameras lie Cause they have to hide the savage crimes committed on leaders That happen to try and nationalise Eating competitions while the world's been starving Beat up communism with the help of Bin Laden Where would your war of terror be without that man? Every day you create more Nidal Hassan's Kill a man from the military, you're a weirdo But kill a wog from the Middle East, you're a hero Your country is causing screams that never reach your ear holes America inflicted a million ground Zeros. Follow the dollar and swallow your humanity. Soldiers committing savagery you never even have to see. Those mad at me, writing emails angrily. I'm not anti America, America is anti me. I don't care if him and 
Cheney along lost relations What matters more is the policies, I lost my patience Stop debating, bringing race into the conversation Occupation and cooperation equals profit making It's over, people wake up from the dream now Nobel Peace Prize, Jay-Z on speed That was the substance within, not the colour of your skin Are you the puppeteer or the puppet on the string? So many believed it was instantly gonna change There was still Dennis Ross, Brzezinski and Robert Gates What happened to Chaz Freeman? What happened to Tristan Anderson? It's a machine that keeps that man breathing I have the heart to say what all these other rappers aren't Words like Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan The war's on and you morons were all wrong I call Obama a bomber cause those are your bombs Your bombs, your bombs, your bombs, your bombs, your bombs, your
welcome back to the weekly review. Played some music there. The last song we heard was called The Politics of Starving by Against Me. Before that, Abomination by Loki. Before that, Free the People by Manu Chow, Chalart58, Cedric Maiden. And before that, Walk Like a Panther by Algiers. And start off the show with a song called Anti-Police Agro by, by Oi Poloi. And then we heard Vitamin String Quartet with Maps. Ah. <sighs> Did want to share some more info for you all. There's a lot of great articles out there, and uh, sometimes it can feel overwhelming. So we do post it to our website at weeklyrev.org. You can see the the articles there that we don't quite get to, because we might not get to all of them. And earlier I did mention that there was a, a PDF. Well, it's, it's a document. from It's on Google Docs, and we've shared it on our website. And uh, it's called Our Prisons Obsolete, and... They have a link to a PDF. Let's see here. Ah, it's from uh, Angela Davis. So our prison's obsolete. It's the full book. So you can, this link has the full book there. So lots of great information. So if you're unable to get a hard copy of the book, you can find it online. So I did want to share that. Um, certainly more than uh, I can, I'm able to read at the moment, especially out loud, but I did want to share that there's a link to that in this document. Um, in the in introduction, uh, here after the PDF, it says, uh, prison reform or prison abolition. Prisons are normalized around the world, reform versus abolition. There's a Kwame Ture video, and let's see if we can play that here. I'm going to get a link up and play the audio for that. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation. The foundation was falling. It was just falling. Couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it.
Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. Oh, wow. So I'm going to continue. There's another video here um, from Kwame Ture, The Principle of capitalism. capitalism. Who are the capitalists? As if we understand that there are only a few people who own and control the means of production in the society, then we begin to understand that there are a few capitalists. And these capitalists exploit everybody because everybody works for them. Everybody sells their labor to them. It is by selling your labor to a capitalist that he's really able to exploit you. Instead of going through theories, let me give some direct example. Let's say that I'm a capitalist. Let's say that I, I sell shirts. I sell shirts. I sell shirts. I have a shirt factory. Let's say this is my factory. I own it. The machinery. I have a place where I get cotton. Now, I own it. I'm the capitalist. Let's say you are my workers. You are my workers. You don't know me. You never see me. You see my lackeys, you know, maybe my foreman, but you never see me. Now, let's say it costs me 50 cents for cotton for every shirt I make. And let's say it cost me 50 cents for upkeep of my machinery. That's a dollar. And let's suppose I pay you a dollar for every shirt you make. That means it cost me $2 to get a shirt, labor included, your labor. I pay you for making the shirt. Now, when I sell the shirt, being a capitalist, and you must know something about capitalism, very important, the sole motivating force, the sole motivating force in a capitalist society is profit. Profit. That is the sole motivating force. Profit. Get money. Get it. Get it as fast as you can. Get it any way you can, but get it. Just get it. Just get it. And uh, even in, uh, you know, in the African community, this 
It affects us here in this country because Africans, those of us living in America, those of us born in America, we are imbued with the philosophy of capitalism, and sometimes we don't even recognize it. Thus, you find brothers and sisters even selling dope to their brothers and sisters to make money. Again, because we're imbued with the philosophy of get some money. Ain't nothing wrong to kill for money. Hell, your country is napalming for money. You can certainly kill for some money. Right, just get it. Just get it. It's the overall philosophy. When we talk about revolution, we must talk about changing values. We must talk about changing values, and we must understand these values. To the shirt factory. I've not forgotten. I'm just going to tie it in. I'll tie it in for you. I'll tie it in. You will see, you must look under the shirt factory, too. You must look for spiraling economy. That's very important, spiraling economy. I sell the shirt for $5. I sell the shirt for $5. I don't do anything. You're the one who make the shirt. I'm exploiting your labor. You toil, you sweat, I get the fruit. That's right, I get it. But you grow it, you plant it by the sweat of your brow. I get it. I sell the shirt for $5. I am exploiting your labor. I really am exploiting your labor. I mean, even when you want a shirt, hey, you got to come to my store and buy the shirt for $5. Hey, I really am exploiting you. Now, you're workers, you're in a factory, so you begin to get social consciousness. Yes, you do. Marx talks about this. Because you're working together, you see the socialized process, the socialized process, the laboring process, and you're able to see clearly how you're being exploited. So you get together, and you start talking about, we want more money. You tell my foreman we want more money. So the foreman comes to see me. He says, the workers say they want more money. Later for them. Keep them working, man. So he comes back, no raise. So y'all work, but y'all get a little bit more agitated, you know, because it's scientific. The pressure rises, and as the pressure rises, the consciousness must rise. It's scientific. It can't be stopped. That's why revolution can't be stopped. Then you say, hey, look here. We're going to strike. So the foreman comes back and said, hey, they said they're going to strike. I said, oh, let them strike, man. And sure enough, y'all strike. Yeah, y'all strike on me. Now, when you strike, of course, my, my machinery stops. I ain't making no money. So after a while, I called my foreman. I said, what do they want? He says, well, they said they want $1.50 more a shirt. They want 50 cents more a shirt. So I said, okay, let them have it. <clears throat> so I'll bring you back. You happy? I pay you $1.50 more. Right, so it now costs me $2.50 to make a shirt. It costs me $2.50 to make a shirt. Before, it cost me $2.00. I was selling it for $5, but hey, look here. I can't go out there and keep selling it for $5. Hey, how am I going to do that? I'm going to lose profit. And look here, since the sole motivating force in a capitalist system is profit, <laughs> ain't no need for me to come and sell it for five fifty. Hey, no. Next time you see that shirt on the market, it's going to cost you $7.50. Right, right. And that's what's known as the spiraling economy, because profit is what about wages go up into the demands of the workers and prices rocket. Wages go up, prices rocket, and it keeps going and going and going until it's got to blow the top. It's scientifically real. That's why Nixon is talking about freezing wages and freezing prices. He's stupid. You got to freeze capitalism, Nixon. Freeze capitalism. That's the problem. That's a problem. Yes, that's a problem. You must understand these concepts, because once you begin to understand them and master them, you will see the inevitability 
of revolution. Not only the inevitability of revolution, but you will see the inevitability of victory for the struggling masses around the world once you understand the scientific principles of revolution. Once you understand it. All right, so this was from uh, UCLA in uh, when Kwame Ture was there in speaking um, January of 1973. So that was the same uh, speech, part of the same speech from it played earlier. And I'm just going to continue playing, playing these because I feel like it's very informative and I also am just uh, tired of talking and would rather share words of others. So... So you're going to find some more uh, info here. Also did want to share, there were a few articles I didn't quite get to, so we'll share these on our website if you'd like to take a look. Also, there's a quick thing you can do. Um, tell Apple no spyware on my phone. Apple is abandoning its commitment to privacy. Ha, ha, ha. Like, really, what? Uh, with iOS 15. Wow, that's, wow. Uh, by creating an unprecedented backdoor it can use to scan everything on your Apple devices, including photos and messages. They say that this is to stop child sex abuse material, but once the backdoor exists, it will be used to surveil and censor people. Don't let Apple throw away the privacy and security of billions. So very simple. You can just uh, sign this petition. You can go to nospyphone.com. We'll also share it on our website. And they've got more information here. They've got some articles from the EFF, uh, Reuters, Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, you can also email Apple Leadership and tell them uh, that as well. So lots of white dudes there. Okay. Ugh. So, yeah, we'll provide a link to this page on our website. I'm going to do that right now before I forget. And, again, everything's connected when these big companies want to uh, really just – monopolize on everything 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 that's uh of who we are and what we produce it's pretty disgusting but tell them no right share the message all right and we're also going to be providing uh links to the videos that we're playing on the show so you can also share them with people and also the uh, Our Prison's Obsolete Notes, which I didn't quite make it far because I was already sharing so much of it. Uh, we'll be sharing that document on our page as well. And there's also an article I just came across today, Racism in the Dewey Decimal System, from Anna Gooding Call. That came out today on September 3rd, 2021, and that's from bookriot.com. We're going to share that article on our page. And that's in line with another article I was going to read, but I'm just going to post it for now. Abolitionist library workers want library access for all. That begins with getting cops out. And again, everything's connected. That's an article by Jason Christian that came out on In These Times on August 23rd, 2021. Uh, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my, my allergies. All right. I'm going to play a little bit more music, and then we'll get back with uh, some more speeches here. And next up, uh, The Right to Choose by Oi Polloi.
Alright, welcome back. That was Margot Price with Letting Me Down. Before that, The Right to Choose by Oi Polloi. Going to now share uh, audio from a video. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Also, I guess now's a good time to say if you want to support the show, you can do so by donating to our Patreon. Go to weeklyrev.org and click on the uh, Patreon tab. And a big thanks to all the folks who have been supporting the show over the years financially. If you're able, that's great. Also, just by spreading the word and listening is uh, super helpful as well. So we're going to close off the show. We got another half an hour or so, but wanted to share a uh, closing keynote. Uh, let's see. Uh, this is... Uh, this is the activist summit from 2021. This came out in August 13th, so this was pretty recently. So I wanted to share this. This is uh, Paxton Smith, uh, a recent high school graduate, so from Dallas, Texas. So I thought this would be uh, a bit timely, and uh, just to hear from other folks out there doing the work. Welcome back, folks. Here we are, the closing of day two. And I am so excited for our closing. If you want and the this energy is, uh, from to start Narrow. another week of reproductive freedom activism, you're about to get it. Um, before, however, I introduce our amazing closing keynote speaker, I want to thank you all for such an amazing summit. And I want to remind you, if you have not yet, please, after this, this closing keynote, go to the photo booth in Cadence, take your selfie, tweet it, tag us at NARAL. Or if you put your selfie on Instagram or Facebook, tag us at ProChoice America. We really look forward to seeing your beautiful faces. Shout out to on Twitter at Rio Harder. I saw your selfie and I loved it. Thank you so much. Um, so please, please, please do visit our photo booth. Also, you can visit our tables in our Cadence conference platform after this keynote where you will be able to see our store, get social media tips from the from message as social to someone you're about to hear from, Paxton William, pa sorry, Paxton Smith. Paxton is a student, writer, and musician, and she's widely known for something you may have seen on social media, her valedictory address, which confronted harsh abortion laws in Texas. Now, I also gave my valedictory address at my high school, but I was nowhere near as articulate, nor is my message as social justice focused. So I'm really learning a lot from Paxton. And Paxton's valedictory address has since been heard around the world. It's been translated and published into a variety of languages. And now Paxton is co-authoring a book called A War on My Body, A War on My Rights, which is set to be released on January 22nd, 2022. I look forward to pre-ordering that book. Paxton is currently carrying out her studies at the University of Texas at Austin and also serving on the advisory board 
of the organization A is For, which is a nonprofit that uses the arts to destigmatize abortion. Now, before you hear from Paxton, if you not if you are not one of the millions of people around the world who have seen Paxton's valedictory address, we're going to play it for you. So without further ado, before you hear from the incredibly passionate Paxton Smith, please take a look now at her valedictory address. I'm not usually very good at expressing my gratitude for the people that I care about, um, but I would like to say thank you to Coach. I think he's had a bigger role in my life than he realizes. Okay. As we leave high school, we need to make our voices heard. Today, I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger. A decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I'm talking about this today, on a day as important as this on a day honoring 12 years of hard academic work, on a day where we are all gathered together, on a day where you are most inclined to listen to a voice like mine, a woman's voice, to tell you that this is a problem, and it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you.
my name is Paxton Smith. In May of 2021, Texas passed the heartbeat bill. For those of you who don't know what that is, although you did just see my speech, so you probably know, um, the heartbeat bill is a piece of legislation that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy in Texas, regardless of whether or not the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. When I first heard that this bill had been passed, I was actually sitting in my high school government class, and my teacher decided to, to mention it as a way of transitioning from one topic to another. A total of two people, myself included, expressed our frustrations, and that was the end of the conversation around the bill for the rest of the day. When I got home, I got on Instagram, and I saw a number of posts by women who were angry at the bill's passing, but it wasn't making any news headlines, which confused me. It confused me because the media coverage, the amount of media coverage that this bill got was not reflective of the reality of this bill. By banning abortions at six weeks, it effectively ended abortions in Texas. Many, if not most women, don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. And so before those women have a chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility emotionally, physically, and financially of carrying out a full-term pregnancy, that decision is made for them. That is a life-changing decision that is made without their input or without their consent. And so the reality of a bill like this is that it will, when it goes into effect, if and when, change the lives of thousands upon thousands of women. So you can imagine how I felt in seeing that it had passed. And you can imagine how I felt in seeing that it was not front and center in the news. But it was front and center in my mind because how could it not be? I'm 18. I'm going to college soon at the University of Texas at Austin, and I've spent my entire life working towards this future that I'm about to embark on. I worked tirelessly to get these perfect grades. I was in almost every extracurricular I could be, taking leadership positions. I did multiple internships. I worked a part-time job to help finance my education, and that was all in the hopes of opening up every opportunity I could have possible so that the way that I spend the time that I have in my life is up to me, and I have as many options as possible. But when I sat and I thought about this piece of legislation, I thought about if my contraceptives fail, if, my, if I get raped, if I face myself with an unplanned pregnancy, then the decision of whether or not I have that child is no longer mine. It is a stranger's decision. And at the will of a stranger, I will be forced to have a child regardless of whether or not I want to, regardless of whether or not I can handle it, regardless of the way that it will affect my life, my future, the one that I woke up every single day and spent time and effort working towards. That is my reality, starting in September, if this bill goes into effect, and that will be the reality of millions upon millions of women. But even before the Texas abortion ban and before the attempted bans in other states, this is already people's real-life situation. I'm going to tell you a story about a close friend of mine who had an illegal abortion about six months ago. One night, she got into an argument with her mom. Their relationship is not the most stable, but that doesn't make getting through those arguments any easier. And so she was desperate to get out of the house. 
So when her friend reached out and asked her to come over, she said yes. When she went to his house, they decided to get high to pass the time. And at the end of the night, when both of their judgment was slightly impaired, they decided to have sex. About a month later, on a family vacation, she noticed that her period was late. And she texted her friend. She said, hey, did we use protection? And he responded, yes, we did, but I stepped on the condom first. Now, if Texas taught a comprehensive sex education as opposed to the abstinence-only sex education, he would have known that that condom was probably uh, ineffective after he had stepped on it, and he would have known to open a new one. But that is not the sex education that Texas kids receive. Regardless of this, though, my friend decided to go, get, go and get a pregnancy test, and she took that pregnancy test that night, and it came back positive. She was pregnant. She texted her friend again. She was panicking. She said, hey, I'm pregnant. It's your kid. And he was almost entirely unresponsive, which left her to deal with the pregnancy on her own. And she had two options. She could have an abortion or she could have a child as a child. See, my friend was actually 16 when this happened. And in Texas, if you are a minor, you have to get a parent's permission, a parent's consent to have an abortion. It's like that in over half of the states in this country. Because her relationship with her mom was already unstable and because her mom was very vocally anti-sex, anti-birth control, and anti-abortion, she didn't feel safe going to her mom to ask for an abortion, let alone tell her that she had been pregnant. So now she was left with two slightly different options. She could have a child, as a child, or she could have an illegal abortion. She chose the second option. She went to Google and she looked up all of the ways that you can induce a miscarriage, and she chose one of the first options that came up, which was consequently one of the easiest ones as she was on a family vacation, and that was the consumption of Advil. That night, she took 10 pills. The next morning, when she hadn't had a miscarriage yet, she decided to take 20. Over the course of three nights and one morning, my friend had taken four bottles of Advil, well surpassing the lethal dosage, and it is a miracle that she did not die. But she will most likely suffer severe liver and kidney problems in her future. It was terrifying for her. She tells me that even now, six months afterwards, she still stays up and crying, thinking about how every day of that family vacation could have been the last time she saw her dad. It could have been the last time she joked around with her sister. It could have been the last time that she pranked her brother she, because she knew she could have died, but she was willing to take that risk to have an abortion. About a week later, she had a miscarriage in a gas station bathroom alone and with no one to call for help. There are so many restrictions and barriers placed between women and abortions that it is no longer a legal right for everyone, but it is a privilege for the few who have the resources to overcome those barriers. If you don't see that firsthand, sometimes it can be very difficult to realize that that is the way that it is. And for me, it took the passing of the heartbeat bill to fully realize the state of reproductive health and reproductive rights in the United States. In 2021 alone, in the United States, over 500 pieces of anti-abortion legislation were proposed to be put into law. 
After Donald Trump's time in office, the Supreme Court now has a conservative majority. And because of that, lawmakers are actively passing unconstitutional abortion bans and unconstitutional abortion restrictions with the hopes of overturning Roe v. Wade. If that happens, we will no longer have a constitutional right to legal abortion. And every woman in this nation will be at risk of being forced to carry out a pregnancy against their will or being in the same boat as my friend, having to risk your life, risk your health to access a basic medical procedure. I need people to know how terrifying that is. I need people to know how gut-wrenching that is. I need people to know how dehumanizing that is. And for that, because of that need, that is why I made my valedictorian speech about just that, as it relates to the Texas heartbeat bill. And that speech went viral and is ultimately the reason why I am here talking to you today. If there's anything that I've learned from my experience in preparing to give the speech and giving the speech and then doing advocacy afterwards. It's that abortion is too often talked about from some third person point of view. People use facts and statistics to defend abortion or to deface it. But at the end of the day, abortion is not a facts and statistics issue. It is a human issue. If I could ask you to do anything today after we all log off, I would ask you to think about what your story is. Think about what your experience is be, and share it with a friend, share it with family, share it on social media, because at the end of the day, we all have a reason why we're fighting for this basic right. And the sooner that we can bring those reasons and those experiences to light, the sooner that we can talk about abortion for what it truly is. Abortion is personal and it affects real people in real ways it affects people in ways we can't see, and it affects people in ways that we don't see. So my question to you is, what's your story? Wow, Paxton, what is your story? I want everyone to reflect on that. What's your story? I think I want to share one takeaway from Paxton's closing remarks, and I deeply thank you for your leadership. It's the power of disruption. It's not acceptable and it's not normal what is happening right now. And what you saw Paxton do and the leadership Paxton continues to do is what we need. Paxton, I want to thank you so, so much for closing thank out you. so powerfully this amazing summit. Um, thank you. We will continue to support you, Paxton. Keep fighting the good fight in Texas and nationwide. Thank you. Absolutely, Paxton. Now, everyone, thank you. This has been an amazing summit, our second annual at Neural Pro Choice in America. I'd love to hear from the chat a little bit about. All right. So this was from uh, Summit Day 2 from Neural, and that's N A R A L. You can find more information from them. They also have a YouTube channel you can subscribe to, and that was Paxton Smith, the keynote speaker. We've provided a link on our website at weeklyrev.org. 
All right, going to close off with some music here. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back again. I'll be here next week, but we'll be playing something else next week. But do check out weeklyrev.org for more information. And uh, here's some crass. Perhaps you can tell there's uh, definitely some uh, themes here with the music we're playing today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please do support Mutiny Radio. And we'll be back again soon. Take care.